Vincent Werbeck's Derby. I want to say that all of us in the room this evening are wearing glasses. Um, I've got an old pair of glasses here. Uh, they normally sit in my car just in case I have a bit of trouble and I suddenly forget they're there because they're still just about legal. Um, so I'm going to put these on, just a kind of a little visual thing for you guys. Now you may be sitting there thinking, Andy, I'm not wearing glasses. I put my contacts in this evening because I knew I was coming to church. Or you might be sitting there thinking, Andy, I've got 20-20 vision. I'm not wearing glasses at all. In fact, I'm never going to need glasses. Well, you know, that's amazing because in the new creation we will all have glasses. We won't, any of us have glasses, but it'll be great. Um, But I want to put it to you um, that actually all of us see the world in a particular way. We view the world through particular kind of lenses. And unless you meet somebody else that views the world in a very different way, you may not notice it. And it may only be that when you go to a different part of the world, you go, oh my goodness, I didn't realise I saw the world through these. I thought that's what everybody thought. But all of us tonight are wearing glasses. You see, we're part of a generation and a culture where individualism reigns. We're all about personal choice. We're about personal happiness, creating my profile, my playlist, my wall, my feed, my story. We've even got iPhones. We don't have Wii phones. It's all about me. And you know, you know how I love philosophers and all that sort of stuff. So I thought we'd just start with a quote from an incredible philosopher. Um, she says this. She says... Uh, It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. I could sing it, but um, that would be embarrassing for you and for me. Um, But I've sat through that film. I've never sat through it all the way through, but as I have a daughter who's seven, um, I've watched it a number of times, although I have a fear that there's another one approaching. um, But it's going to be fine. But actually, if you watch all of the kind of Disney films, the modern ones, they're all about an individual finding themselves, about kind of letting go of responsibility and they have to go off and do their own thing. It's all about them. But each of us, I want to suggest this evening, want to live for something greater than ourselves, something that will outlast us, something that really matters. And a while ago, I read an incredible example of this. There's a guy called Atul Gawande, I think that's how you say his name. He's a physician, he's a professor, and he's an author. And he tells a story of a doctor who was working at a nursing home. And he was persuaded uh, by the administrator to bring in, I think it was, what was it, bring in dogs and cats and parakeets, a colony of rabbits, and even a group of laying hens. Can you imagine that? A group of laying hens in this nursing home. And the idea was that the residents were going to care for these animals. And do you know what happened? The residents, they began to wake up. They began to come to life. People who they'd believed weren't able to speak started speaking. People who'd been completely withdrawn and had been not able to get out of chairs suddenly started coming and saying, I'll take the dog for a walk. All the parakeets were adopted and named by the residents. And do you know what? It's statistically, um, the need for psychotropic drugs for agitation dropped by 38%. And even deaths fell by 15%. Just because suddenly these guys had something else to live for that was greater than themselves. And it may have only been caring for an animal, but that was incredibly significant for them. And so I want to say to you tonight, if you identify as a follower, a disciple of Jesus, or if you don't in this building this evening, all of us need to live for something bigger than ourselves. 
over the past few weeks, Phil reminded us that we've been looking at this theme of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the thing that Jesus spoke more about than anything else in his ministry. We've begun to understand that it's about God's reign and God's rule. We learned that it's like a mustard seed or a yeast that starts really small and then it grows and it expands and it can impact something incredibly large. We've seen that the kingdom has a manifesto. The kingdom is demonstrated through signs and wonders. Gav spoke to us last week about healing and then there's prophecy and all that sort of stuff. And we're reminded that the kingdom has a king and his name is Jesus. And this evening we're thinking about people of the kingdom. Now often, if you've grown up in this culture, and I know some of us haven't, I know we've got people from other parts of the world, but if you've grown up in this culture, we tend to read the Bible through a particular set of glasses, of lenses that says, it's all about me and my relationship with God and kind of my walk with Him. Now you'll be pleased to know that is in there, you haven't been misled. But the story is about something so much bigger than just me and my God. It's about God establishing his kingdom on earth. It's about heaven coming down to earth. It's about one day new creation, new heavens and new earth, bodily resurrection. It's about God's reign and God's rule. And if we choose to come under that reign and rule, we get to be part of the people of the kingdom. Now I know we're really privileged as a church every week to have new faces in here. We have people who um, are exploring faith and if you're one of them this evening, you are so welcome here tonight. And I know that also we have people that may have, you may have grown up in church, but you might be a little bit sketchy on the Bible story and how it all fits together. And so I love reminding us, uh, most of the times I speak, just of that big story. We can get lost in the detail. So let's just remind ourselves of the big story of the Bible. God, it begins in creation. God exists and he creates the heavens and the earth and then he creates humanity and he says, let me be your king. And humanity decide to reject their king. They fall away from him. And so God calls for himself. He gathers a people. He gathers the people of Israel and he says, guys, I'm going to be your king. Follow me. Let me reign over you. And sometimes they follow him and sometimes they don't. And he sends his prophets and says, one day the king is going to come. And the king then does come in the person of Jesus. And he lives uh, and he teaches them about the kingdom of God. And he, uh, then he ends up dying one day on a cross. And that's not the end of the story. He's raised to life. And actually in and through that he inaugurates, he begins his kingdom on earth. And we now, we live in the age of the church the people of God who are kind of seeking to follow the way of Jesus in the world. We get to be agents and signs for his kingdom. And one day, the king will return again. The kingdom will come, not just inaugurated, but it will come in its fullness, and there'll be no more death, no more dying, no more tears. And God's people will be with their king from every tribe and every tongue. Um, Ming, if I could just invite you up to help me with a little bit of an illustration this evening, it would be really helpful. You see, friends, we need a bigger vision. We need to change our glasses. We need to get bigger glasses. Ming, thank you so much. I won't leave you here for too long. This morning I got my wife up and halfway through the talk she was like, can I sit down? I was like, okay. But actually, we need a bigger vision. We need to go from me to we. We need to go from me to we. 
Ming, you can sit down. Thank you ever so much. I'm just going to give him a round of applause for that. Where can we put them? Let's try here. There we go. Amazing. So we're just going to dip into three parts of this big story of God, looking at people of the kingdom. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app on your phone this evening, can I encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Just to say, if you're new here this evening and you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. There are some Bibles over here on the table by this pillar. That will be our gift to you. We do believe that reading this book really can change your life. You turn to Exodus chapter 19. It will appear on the screens behind me as well, but it's great to have it open in front of you. And just to let you know that this reading comes after the people of God. They've left slavery. God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. God has provided food for them. He's provided water for them. He's about to give them the Ten Commandments. And we pick it up at Exodus 19, verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, The Israelites weren't as individualistic as we are, but they were um, quite tribal. And God is trying to get them to go from kind of me to we. He wants to give them a bigger vision. He wants to say, I want you to be my people. And he says, guys, I carried you. I carried you out of Egypt, totally dependent on me. And do you know what? God then does something absolutely incredible in the ancient world. It's unheard of. God creates something called a covenant with his people. Now you might be sitting there thinking, what's a covenant? A covenant is, um, it's more than a contract and it's more than just a kind of a relational promise. It's more relational than a contract, but it's more kind of binding than just a, a relational thing. The closest thing we've got to it in our culture is marriage. Just incredible. God makes a covenant with his people. And he says, I'll be your king. And he chooses them out of all the peoples of the earth. He says, you're going to be my treasured possession. The other week we were um, kind of, we're in Chester Green area of the city and, and there was the flood defences and the flood was coming down. I got a text in the middle of the afternoon on that Friday going, Andy, you might need to move your TV upstairs. And I thought the guy was joking. And then I looked at the flood watch and I was like, oh my goodness. Uh, and I was going, what do I need to take upstairs? You know, do I take the Nintendo Switch upstairs? Do I take like, my passports upstairs? Do I, you know, I was thinking, what are my treasured possessions? God says to Israel, you are going to be my treasured possession." He says you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're not just going to be kind of uh, ruled or ruled by strength and might, but actually you're going to be a people that rely on me. You're going to represent me to the world, and you're going to represent the world to me. A kingdom of priests. And you're going to be a holy nation, a holy people. You're going to be the idea of being set apart. You're going to be kind of for special use for me. You see, God is not here choosing individuals. He's choosing a people. Not just an individual, but he's choosing a people. And we find out elsewhere that God didn't pick them because they deserved it. They didn't, he didn't pick them because they're bigger and stronger than any other nation. He simply 
chooses them out of his grace for them, out of his love for them. And so as God chooses a people, we need to go from me to we. When I was a teenager, um, it was a little bit weird, but I used to go to a snorkeling club every Friday. Um, and there wasn't a lot of kind of nature in the pool. There wasn't a lot of kind of life in there, apart from the kind of stuff that people took in, like the little hair that ends up in the vents, that kind of stuff. Um, so there wasn't a lot to see. But actually, I'd do it every week for a number of years. And uh, every so often, it was probably kind of around Christmas time or the, the school holidays, they would do a games night. And what we used to do is this funny little game called Octopush. You've probably never heard of it, but you have these little kind of things that you would push. You'd have a puck that goes on the floor, and then you'd push it along the floor. So it's a bit like kind of hockey at the bottom of the pool. It was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it. But what happened was we suddenly went from a bunch of individuals kind of snorkeling around in this pool to suddenly being a team playing against one another. We went from a bunch of me's to, a bunch, to, to, to kind of a bunch of we's. We are all together, individuals, to a corporate grouping together. And God is saying to his people Israel, go from me to we. And then the story goes on. And we pick up the story after Jesus has lived and he's died and he's been raised to life. And the people of God are trying to work out, okay, Jesus was here. What does it look like now for us to live out this kingdom life? Now Jesus has ascended to heaven. So again, if you've got your Bible, if you could turn to Acts chapter 2. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. If you don't know where it is, the contents page is really useful. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We established a few weeks ago that the kingdom is not the church. The kingdom is God's reign and God's rule. But actually, this is a story of how those earliest followers of Jesus, people that came under his reign and his rule, were trying to work out what it means to live for him. A guy that I read quite, well, I'd like to read quite a bit of, he often gets quoted, but he's a little bit too complex for me to get my brain around, is a guy called Leslie Newbigin. He was a missionary to India, and he was also a bishop. Amazing guy. And he said this. He said, The only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it, and live by it. What does he mean? There's a few odd words in there. He's basically saying people outside the church can only see the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the good news about Jesus, by seeing, but you can only see it's true by seeing people who are actually living this stuff out. That's that's the only way they're going to really come to believe this thing's true, if they actually see people who live this stuff out. And so if that's true, we need to go from me to we. And what do these earliest Christians do in the book of Acts? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They break bread together, meaning they celebrate communion. We're going to do that in a few minutes' time. They pray together. They do signs and wonders, which will be the healing and um, the prophecy and all that kind of stuff. They're radically generous with one another. Now, this isn't a state-imposed political thing. This is Christians saying, God has given so much to us. We're going to give because 
Everything we've got comes from him and therefore we're going to share it with one another. They met daily and they ate together. And daily they saw people coming under the reign and rule of King Jesus. They saw people being saved. They went from a terrified people, afraid of persecution, locked in a room, an upper room, to a vibrant living community who trusted in Jesus and believed he was alive. They went from me to we. And this small group of people had, have had an incredible impact on the world. Incredible impact. Over the past few weeks, I've been reading a book uh, by a guy called Tom Holland. This isn't Tom Holland's Spider-Man, if that's where your brain goes. This is Tom Holland's historian. Okay, so don't get confused on Amazon. You'll get very different things come up. Tom Holland uh, wrote a book called Dominion, and he wouldn't describe himself as a Christian, interestingly. But he's written about how the Christian faith has totally shaped our culture in the West. And so whether you're here tonight and you identify as a Christian or you don't, the fact that you care about people on the margins, the fact you don't believe that the strong should defeat the weak, the fact that you think that human beings have dignity just because they're human is because you grew up in a culture that has been shaped by the Christian faith. It's incredible. There has been no other movement like it in history that has shaped the world like this small bunch of people did. It's just incredible. There's nothing else like it. Within a few hundred years of the resurrection, they, this small group of people had caused the stopping of gladiator games in the Roman Empire. They'd stopped children being abandoned to death because actually people didn't believe they were worth anything. And the Christians said, no, these are children made in the image of a creator God. They're worth something. And so they gathered them and they'd look after them. And eventually the Roman Empire thought this isn't a good idea because it, as it became Christianized. It elevated the status of women as they believed that man and woman are both made in the image of God. And most of those things we just go, well, of course. But it's because you've grown up in a culture shaped by the Christian faith. And it has happened in other parts of the world too. In the uh, mid-20th century, uh, the first bishop of India, along with 50 Dalit Christians, the Dalits were the untouchables, they were like the lowest caste in society. They wrote this letter because um, people had seen Christianity as a colonial, oppressive religion. And they said, no, no, no. Christianity has brought us fellowship and brotherhood. It has treated us with respect and it has given us self-respect. Freed by Christ from chains of ignorance and fear, we've found within ourselves new courage, new hope, new strength to struggle upward. You see, as we go from me to we and we live out as people of the kingdom, God can transform whole societies and cultures. That's what he does. And yet, as we've highlighted in this series, we don't see it in its fullness. So we see some healing, we see some salvation, we see some justice, we see some peace, but we don't see it in its fullness. The kingdom of God has come, but not yet in its fullness. And so I want to just jump to the very end of this big Bible story. I want to go to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. If you don't know where that is, it's the last book of the Bible. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. And this is uh, John who has an incredible vision of uh, what the end will be like. And in particular, uh, he's beginning to hear thinking around uh, eternity. And he says this, chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And then he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Do you see, one day God is going to dwell fully with the people of God. Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings um, once said this. He said, is everything sad going to come untrue? Jesus' answer is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Sally Lloyd-Jones in Jesus' Storybook Barn, which is just a kid's book, but it's just incredibly profound. She says this, The ending of the story was going to be so great, it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow, chased away by the morning sun. Friends, we know how the story ends. We've got this incredible image of the people of God corporately as the bride dressed for her husband, Jesus. You see, it's an incredible picture, not just of individual souls going up to some floaty heaven on clouds playing harps, but of new heavens, of new earth, of bodily resurrection together, making up the bride of Christ. Now you might sit there and think, Andy, that's just pie in the sky when we die. But actually it affects how we live now. Uh, a scholar in the mid-1920s at Boston University wrote about American slaves. A lot of people said these American slaves, they just kind of, it, if they believe in heaven, it just kind of appeases them and helps them to be submissive. He said, no, their spirituality is far, far deeper than that. He says this, it taught a people how to ride high in life. They fashioned a hope that their environment with all of its cruelty could not crush. Why could nothing destroy their hope? It was because it was otherworldly. It was not based on any circumstance within the walls of this world. It lay in the future of God. And this is the future. If you're a follower of Jesus here tonight, this is our future too. And it's a future that takes us to go from me to we. And so the question is for us tonight, what is our response? Well, it may be that you're sitting there thinking, do you know what, Andy? I've never thought about living for something bigger than myself. I thought that my life was basically going to be all about me. But actually, after all that's going on, and I think I might want to live for that. I might want to be part of this people of the kingdom. And so if that's you here this evening, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity to follow me in a prayer. So I'm going to pray a line, and you can repeat that after me, kind of in your heart between you and God. So I'm going to pray. Father God, I'm sorry for living just for myself. I want to live for something bigger than myself. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. That I could be forgiven and have new life within the people of the kingdom. 
Would you fill me with your spirit? And help me to live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Perhaps if you prayed that prayer for the first time this evening, could I encourage you to come to speak to myself or Phil or Jenny um, at the end of the service? It's the beginning of your story, not the end. We would love to encourage you um, as you go forward. For many of us, however, we may have begun that kind of story a long time ago. And the danger is, isn't it, that we start living again for ourselves. How does, can that, what can that look like? Well, we can easily go online and listen to incredible worship music. We can read our Bibles on our own. We can listen to incredible sermons online, much better than this one. And all of those things are good things, by the way. They're not bad. I would encourage you to do that for your own personal growth. But actually, we can't be a Christian on our own. We're called to be part of the people of God together. And something that really hit me in the last few days is that actually there are certain things we just cannot do on our own. Do you know what? We can't be baptized on our own. You need somebody to baptize you. And as you come into the family, it's really good to have your family, kind of your Christian family and friends there to watch and encourage you. And in two weeks' time, we're going to do that here. Phil said that. Another thing you can't do on your own as a Christian is you can't receive communion. You can't take the family meal without the family there. And this evening, we're going to do that together. And I want to be honest with you, when I was young growing up, I really struggled with communion. It felt like we kind of got together and we said the same old words and we kind of went through it. And I was like, oh, here we go. It's just the extra bit that makes the service longer. So I biscuits so much further off. You can see how my mind works. I was deeply spiritual at the time. But actually, the older I get, the more I'm aware that as we take communion together, We join with the universal church. We join with the global church. We say, this is not about me and my story. This is about God and his story. And we go from me and looking at the world through our lenses. We get a bigger vision. We go from me to we. And so friends, as we do this together, I believe that it will help us grow an authentic community, which is Christ-centered, that plays its part in transforming this city and beyond.